Freakish History takes a deep dive into stranger-than-fiction historical events and plops the listener down in the middle of the bizarre and compelling action. In Season 1, we head to Cleveland, Ohio for the Tencent Beer Night Riot of 1974. Welcome to Heading for Home, a 10 cent beer night odyssey. I'm Eric Olson. Every year, the media celebrate the anniversary of the 10 cent beer night riot of 1974 at Cleveland Stadium. Fans, awash in cheap beer, streaked, chanted obscenities, pelted the players with everything from hot dogs to explosives, then charged the field and brawled viciously with the visiting Texas Rangers and their own home team Indians. This is that story. Previously on Heading for Home, sliding naked into history, a tribal drumbeat demanded blood sacrifice. The tribe showed some life. A rookie was welcomed with gifts and salutations, and the Rangers extended their lead. Indians manager Ken Aspermani, now looking considerably less prescient than he had three batters earlier, strode to the mound took the ball from a dispirited Bosman and waved righty Tom Buskey in from the bullpen. Buskey had come to the Indians from the Yankees in the Fritz Peterson trade and had only pitched five times for the Tribe, entering the game with an ERA of 4.30. Buskey struck out Mike Hargrove to end the inning, but the damage had been done and the Rangers now held a 5-1 lead heading into the bottom of the sixth inning. Making matters worse, through five innings, Fergie Jenkins had looked sharp, scattering five singles and giving up no walks. The Indians led off with second baseman Jack Brohammer, who despite going 0-for-2 thus far in the game, was still hitting over 330 as he came to the plate. The hammer ripped a ground-rule double over the fence and right on one hop. Leron Lee then scalded a grounder toward Mike Hargrove at first base. The grounder ate Hargrove up and bounded past him into the outfield. Brohammer scored from second and Lee made it to second base on the error. Charlie Spikes was next and crushed a liner right at third baseman Jim Fergosi for the first out. Oscar Gamble settled in the box for the Tribe and hit another scorcher to third, which was fielded by Fergosi on the bounce and tossed over to Hargrove at first for the second out. On the throw to first, Lee took off for third, and Jenkins dashed to the base to take the return throw from Hargrove. The sturdy Lee came charging into third under a full head of steam and slammed into Jenkins, who collapsed in pain. The call at third was safe by umpire Nestor Shylock on a very close play. The partisans went bonkers with approval, half at Lee reaching third base safely, and half at Jenkins writhing in pain on the ground with a spike wound to the leg. Billy Martin ran out to dispute the call. The Rangers trainer ran out to attend to Jenkins, and the crowd threw everything they could get their hands on while screaming dark threats and insults at Martin and voicing their preference for Jenkins' injury to be life-threatening. After some poking and prodding by the trainer, Jenkins limped off the field under his own steam. 
A significant, if scattered, portion of the crowd gave him the customary polite applause that says, We appreciate your efforts, even though you are the opponent, and we are sorry that you got hurt in the course of play. Or something like that. Meanwhile, a louder and more forceful portion of the crowd continued to scream threats and insults at Martin, wish Jenkins gangrene and amputation, and heave peanuts, hot dogs, toilet paper rolls, batteries, coins, and cups of beer onto, or in the direction of, the baseball field. Nimbly dodging projectiles, right-hander Steve Foucault headed toward the mound from the bullpen to relieve the punctured Jenkins with two out and Leon third in the bottom of the sixth inning to pitch against the always dangerous George Hendrick. As Foucault took his warm-up pitches on the mound, the beleaguered grounds crew did their best to tidy up the field. But for every piece of detritus they removed, another took its place. Just as Foucault concluded his warm-ups, a tennis ball completed an elegant arc from the upper deck onto the field to play. Home plate umpire Larry McCoy, whose body language indicated he was tired of this shit, called time as the ball bounced merrily across right field toward center. As if compelled by the mesmerizing boing-boinging of the ball, an athletic young man ambled onto the field along the right field foul line, chased the ball down, then turned and whipped it impressively back into the stands. Then, with nothing better to do, he continued his westward journey into left field with security guards and Keystone Cops-like pursuit. Another celebrant breached the left field fence and made a beeline toward his tennis ball-tossing comrade. When their paths met and left, the sprinters gave each other a big old hug. The crowd cheered supportively at this expression of outlaw solidarity. The guards caught up to the first sprinter and wrestled him to the ground, perhaps a bit more roughly than necessary, as the other fans sprinted back into the stands in safety. The throng booed with a shocking intensity that literally shook the foundation of the old stadium, sending puffs of concrete dust into the warm night air. As Foucault stood awkwardly on the mound, waiting for his chance to actually pitch, stadium announcer Bob Kiefer intoned, Ladies and gentlemen, the Indians players and management request that you stop throwing things and stop running onto the field. Thank you for your cooperation. Naturally, this announcement led to a fresh and even more enthusiastic round of projectiles being thrown onto the field. The beer being served in the stadium? Stroh's. Stroh's was founded in 1850 as a family-owned brewery in Detroit. It rose to prominence, especially in the Midwest, in the 20th century. Hoovered up a bunch of other brands, then eventually declined and was broken up in 2000. But the Stroh's brand, now owned by Pabst, is still brewed to this day. In a 2021 survey, Stroh's was voted the favorite trashy beer of both Ohio and Michigan drinkers who are highly knowledgeable about such things. Home plate umpire McCoy signaled play ball and George Hendricks stepped into the box with Laurent Lee on third and the Indians trailing 5-2 in the bottom of the sixth with two outs. Hendricks swung mightily but sent a slow roller toward third that Fergosi couldn't get to in time, allowing Lee to score and Hendrick to reach first safely with an infield single. 
Suddenly, it was 5-3, and things looked a lot better for the home team. Asi Blanco now came up as the potential tying run against reliever Foucault. Blanco ran the count to three balls and two strikes before striking out swinging on a wicked curveball to end the sixth inning. Another round of trash rained down on the field, and the undermanned grounds crew once again tried to tidy up the field. As the Indians headed out to their defensive positions for the first half of the seventh, a different voice boomed over the stadium PA. A familiar voice, a beloved voice, a voice of folksy authority, the voice of Indians radio announcer and former star pitcher Herb Score. Someone in management had figured that perhaps a cautionary word from Herb might shame the drunken and deranged multitudes back to their senses. Ladies and gentlemen, we're all here to see these teams play baseball. Please stop running onto the field and throwing things. Someone is going to get hurt. A fusillade of firecrackers and smoke bombs erupted throughout the stands as if to reply, We like and respect you, Herb, but this is neither the time nor the place for an old-school baseball man like you to make an appearance, so toddle on back to the radio booth and don't bother us again. Herb Score had been an outstanding left-handed pitcher who was American League Rookie of the Year for the Indians in 1955 when he was just 21 years old. Herb won 16 games, struck out 245 batters, and graced the cover of Sports Illustrated. He was even better in 1956, winning 20 games and striking out 263 to lead the league. But then there was a terrible accident. On May 7, 1957, Score threw a low fastball to the Yankees' Gil McDougald. McDougald smashed a line drive right into Herb's face, breaking multiple bones and injuring his eye. Herb fought valiantly to come back, but was never the same eventually retiring in 1962 and becoming a radio and TV broadcaster for the Indians in 1964. His final game as broadcaster was Game 7 of the 1997 World Series, where the Indians once again managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Tom Buskey returned for the top of the seventh inning to face the Rangers' Jim Sundberg. Buskey, who hadn't pitched in the game since May 22nd, walked Sundberg. Not the ideal way to start the inning after the Indians had just scored two runs to make it close. Several fans leaked onto the field from various points of entry. One particularly ambitious security guard chased a trespasser back toward the stands and tackled him just as he reached the fence. But the fan popped back up and lunged for the wall. Several other fans grabbed him yanked him back into the stands and blocked the way when the guard tried to follow as the fans scampered up the steps toward the concourse and out of sight. Another interloper, a young woman, popped onto the field in foul territory near first base. As she strutted about, waving to players and the stands alike, a very vocal contingent of fans behind the Indians' dugout began a chorus. At first, the young woman teased coyly, tugging at the bottom of her top. But she clearly became rattled as the demand to expose her breasts grew to an imperative of religious intensity. As the young woman signaled that no, she would not be participating in boob-bearing, a security guard sneaked up behind her and grabbed her in his clutches. 
Caught utterly off guard and already on edge from the lewd chant directed at her bosom, the young woman yelped audibly and stomped her right heel down on the foot of the assailant, groping her from behind. The guard screeched in pain and hopped up and down on his left foot, clutching his injured right foot in his hands. As the guard again grabbed at the woman, she shoved him away and he stumbled and fell flat on his face. Motivated by searing pain in his foot and a face full of grass, the guard scrambled quickly to his feet and roughly shoved the young woman to the ground. The limping guard escorted the distraught and grass-stained woman off the field. Finally, play resumed with Sunberg standing on first base with a walk and no outs in the top of the seventh. Buskey delivered a ball to Rangers leadoff man Cesar Tovar. Buskey closed his eyes and reached deeply into his safe space for the piece to throw some effing strikes. But he still felt discombobulated, as if an imposter had taken over his body at the worst possible time. The stretch and the pitch, ball two. Another pitch, another ball, this time low and outside. Three balls and no strikes. With Tovar taking all the way, Buskey pumped a fastball right down the middle of the plate for strike one. But the next pitch was another ball, and now there were runners on first and second with nobody out. With the situation looking grim, the baseball gods decided to shine on Buskey, and the hurler's internal cylinders clicked into place. He induced the ubiquitous Lenny Randall to pop out to short, and he persuaded Alex Johnson to ground out from Lowenstein at third to Brohammer at second for a force out, leaving Sunberg at third and Johnson at first with two outs in the top of the seventh. Jeff Burroughs was next up. Buskey battled, but Burroughs wasn't biting, and after a couple of very close calls at the plate that could easily have been called strikes, Burroughs too walked, loading the bases with two outs and the seemingly unstoppable Tom Grieve coming up to bat. Ken Aspermani took the long stroll from the dugout to the mound and signaled for righty reliever Milt Wilcox to come into the game to face Grieve, who already had two home runs and a single in the game. Wilcox entered the game with a slick 2.30 ERA, and he had allowed only one earned run in his previous 12 appearances dating back to April 21st. As Wilcox trotted in from the bullpen, fans in the left field stands decided that they were sick to death of the padding on top of the left field wall, and their only recourse was to tear it to shreds. They started pulling and yanking, and a guy with a knife started cutting. The grounds crew spotted the aberrant activity, and gathering their resolve once again, tried to shoo the fans away. While one contingent of fans denuded the left field wall, another group gathered above the Rangers' bullpen, which was on the field next to the fence, two-thirds of the way down the third base line. This group of saddists began dropping lit firecrackers onto the Rangers' relief pitchers and coaches in the pen, sending them scrambling and high-stepping in a manner most comical if one regarded the opposing team as vermin. At first, the ammo was little poppers, but then someone upped the assault to M80 level, sending a startling boom into every nook and cranny of the stadium, turning all heads. Head umpire Nestor Shylak, positioned nearby at third base, shut the pen down and relocated all Rangers into their dugout. 
Finally, Wilcox went into the windup, and with the bases loaded and two outs in the top of the seventh, he let it fly. Next time on Heading for Home, George Hendrick to the rescue. The sane and the sober flee a beer tsunami. Billy Martin fights fire with fire. Announcer outrage and the tribe threatens. Heading for Home is written and executive produced by Eric and Don Olson. Sound design and original music by Richard Ingraham. Performed by Eric Olson, Buck McWilliams, Alex Olson, Mars Fargo, Tom Fulton, Nathan Welsh, Marty O'Sullivan, Don Olson, Donna Westfall, Brian Westfall, and Richard Ingraham. Freakish History takes a deep dive into stranger-than-fiction historical events and plops the listener down in the middle of the bizarre and compelling action. In Season 1, we head to Cleveland, Ohio for the Ten-Cent Beer Night Riot of 1974. Welcome to Heading for Home, a Ten-Cent Beer Night Odyssey. I'm Eric Olson. Every year, the media celebrate the anniversary of the Ten-Cent Beer Night Riot of 1974 at Cleveland Stadium. Bands, awash in cheap beer, streaked, chanted obscenities, pelted the players with everything from hot dogs to explosives, then charged the field and brawled viciously with the visiting Texas Rangers and their own home team Indians. This is that story. There was aggression in the air before the game even started. She shrieked and disappeared beneath him. With surprising agility, her beefy husband hopped up over the back of his seat onto the row behind him, yanked the thin guy up off his wife, and tossed him at the vendor, sending even more beer The Indians got behind early, and the mood was explosive. Designated hitter Grieve settled in the batter's box and promptly set a majestic blast over the center field fence for a home run. As Grieve crossed home plate for the first run of the game, a single profound explosion thundered in the stands on the first base side behind the Indians' dugout. A streaker took to the base paths. A completely naked man ran onto the field and slid into second base, stealing the thunder from Greaves' second homer. Though chippy, the crowd was also creative and expressive. There was a family of mooners. A pair of fans bounded onto the field and dashed into fair territory in right field. The pair stopped, dropped their pants, bent over, and with the uniformity of synchronized swimmers rotated 360 degrees, making sure the entire stadium equally shared in the glories of their double moon salute. As the tribe fell into a five-to-one hole and the alcohol took hold, stadium announcer Bob Kiefer pled for sanity. Ladies and gentlemen, the Indians players and management request that you stop throwing things and stop running onto the field. Thank you for your cooperation. The field looked like a perverse circus with fans bounding onto it from all corners of the stadium, some doing somersaults and cartwheels, some dancing. Loons in left field were still trying to pull the padding off the wall as the grounds crew, brooms in hand, 
poked and shooed at them like they were a pack of raccoons rooting through the trash. Act! The beer ran out! Attention, guests! All concession stands have run out of beer. Just kidding. However, beer may still be obtained from the trucks on the far side of the outfield fence. Despite the drunken streakers' destruction and explosions, the Indians were on the verge of a huge comeback. He reached back and spun a curve up to the plate. Ashby connected late off the end of the bat and sent a squibber toward Larry Brown at third, who charged and grabbed it cleanly, but had no place to go with the throw. Crosby dashed to third, Torres to second, and young Ashby stood on first with what the young man moved like a spy in a cartoon, crouching low, stepping high, tiptoeing his way across the field toward Burrow. The dam burst. Oh, this is an absolute tragedy. Absolute tragedy. I've been in this business for over 20 years, and I have never seen anything as disgusting as this. I haven't either. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? The Indians team and management request that you clear the field of play immediately. Thank you. Don't miss Heading for Home, season one of Freakish History, the bizarre true tale of the 10-cent beer night riot at Cleveland Stadium in 1974.